Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. What? Oh my goodness. Radiolab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features Surya Ganguly, an associate professor at Stanford University and a neurodynamics researcher. He is joined by Vijay Pandey of Bio and Health. Vijay and Surya start their conversation chatting about the concept of an AI black box and how that might change over time. If we're going to understand any of these AI systems, we really have to understand what we're asking them to do. And what we're asking them to do is predict patterns in data, and we don't even understand those patterns. So we need to understand, we don't have mathematical control over these patterns. Like we don't have a mathematical description of language, we don't have a mathematical description of what a cat looks like. Ironically, the models we train on these things are our best mathematical descriptions and concepts. They also talk about what a future with AI augmented humans might look like. And so the question is, where will the value added of humans be in the future? Will human creativity be valued as much in, in a world of AI creativity? If you look at other analogies, like there's still a market for handcrafted furniture, right? Yeah. It's almost like the nostalgia. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. Saria, thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. Sure, my pleasure. There are so many people that repeat this statement that uh, that neural networks are like a complete black box and that cannot be understood and then make conclusions from that statement. But interpretability is talking about something very different. It's talking about trying to actually do the opposite, make this a pretty clear box. What's your take on interpretability about th- these statements that AI is a black box and what's the hope that we can do something here? I've worked a lot on, on neuroscience problems. We're trying to explain how brain circuits work. And in some sense, brain circuits are a much bigger black box to us than AI systems are because we can't get the connectivity of the brain circuits we're interested in in most situations. You know, recently our community has figured out the entire connectivity of fly brain, which is really exciting. But in AI, we have the entire connectivity. We have all the activity patterns. We have the entire developmental experience of these networks from when they were baby random neural networks to fully adult trained networks, right? present an incredibly exciting opportunity to try to understand the principles of intelligence and how it emerges uh, from non distributed circuits. Right now, we don't understand it. But it's always folly to completely to think that our current lack of understanding uh, precludes any possibility of future understanding. So the way that I think about interpretability is sort of like model reduction. Can you come up with a simpler model than the actual model itself that explains a model's input output behavior in a restricted set of circumstances, right? One paper, for example, where we, we recently melded uh, explainable AI and neuroscience, it just appeared in Neuron, 
was like a, a, a complete model of the retina that was a deep neural network that mimicked uh, almost as well as you could possibly expect given the intrinsic stochasticity of the retina, retinal responses to natural movies, right? So this is like, it, it could almost stand in as a retinal prosthetic. Like it, it's, wow. it's that good at explaining the retinal responses to natural movies. We fit it to neural data. It fits the neural data really well. The retina is stochastic, so it doesn't get the same answer twice to the same movie. But the variability in our model's response mimicked the stochasticity of the retina. So, so it was as, you know, as good as you can expect. But now, have we replaced something we don't understand, the retina, with something else that we don't understand, a complex deep network model of the retina? And so this bothers me as a scientist, right, to no end, because I want a conceptual understanding of how it works. So then what we did is we, we decided, well, people have done decades of experiments with the retina, right? They've, they've had all sorts of crazy nonlinear response properties. Just to give you one example, if I do full field flashes on your retina, right, and then I skip a flash, right at the time when that flash was supposed to come in, your retina will complain a lot. And it'll do this for a range of frequencies. So it's, it's as if the retina has learned a predictive model of the world. The world is periodic right now. And if it violates that periodicity, it'll complain, right? So that's uh, another famous one is Newton's first law. Objects that remain in motion will tend to, objects that are in motion will tend to remain in motion. Your retina knows about Newton's first law, right? Because if there's a moving bar and it suddenly reverses direction, neurons that would have responded to where the bar was going to move will complain a lot, right? So there's all these crazy weird experiments of retina spanning 10 decades. We did all of those experiments with our model retina and got every single one of those right, wow. right? So that was remarkable. So we reproduced the decades worth, more than the decades worth of experimental results. But then we don't understand how it does this. So then what we did is we used causal uh, discovery methods to discover causal subcircuits in our model that were important for the response to any individual stimulus. Those are relatively simple models. We could understand them conceptually and we could suggest uh, experiments to do based on that. We went back to the literature in every single stimulus case where our model, where we extracted a simple model, we found in the literature experimental evidence for that model, except for a couple of stimuli where no, no one model had ever been proposed that accounted for all aspects of it, and we got new models there. So that, that's an example where, you know, I think explainable AI can help. I think the key will be, like, how do you do the model reduction? What is your notion of model complexity? What are the phenomena that are worth explaining, right? In certain language tasks, we won't be able to explain how, it, how a large language model does a whole bunch of, does everything that it does. But we can isolate interesting phenomena uh, of interest and understand how it does each of those phenomena one at a time. So there's going to be, I think, a decades-long unfolding of, of understanding uh, how these models work, akin to how neuroscience developed, akin to how physics developed. But it's going to be much more powerful because it, they are white boxes we can look inside, right? So I, I'm incredibly excited about that field. It's incredibly important for alignment and trust and, and, and safety and all of these things. And I think it starts with the fact that you have this attitude that this can be done. And it comes yeah. from two directions. It comes from neuroscience itself is probing the seeming black box and making it uh, transparent. And then it, you probably know this Wigner quote. I, I assume this is not apocryphal. Wigner has shown this, like, I assume quantum chemistry calculation uh, that some computer ran, which is probably one billionth time slower than my iPhone right now. But the <laughs> 50s, he's shown this calculation. And, and he's like, oh, it's, it's good to know the computer understands it, but I'd like to understand it, too. Exactly, yeah. Coming both from a neuroscience and a physics point of view, it's pretty powerful. And it looks like people are starting to do exactly what you're talking about. That My understanding is that OpenAI is using GPT-2 GPT to study GPT-4. 
uh, is which is a, a version of model reduction. And there's other types of examples where you might train a much simpler model that is much more interpretable, and maybe the AUC goes down. You know, it's yeah. not maybe on the edges, it's not quite as sophisticated, but you, at least you can trace how everything works and you can understand exactly. it and then bootstrap up from there. Honestly, to, to be completely fair and intellectually honest, my belief that we can understand these models in the future is a belief. It has to be proven. Yeah. But it's a belief that stems from my experience with the power of science to explain our natural world, even in very complex settings like condensed matter physics and quantum chemistry and so forth, right? It's also a belief that's driven by my fundamental identity as a scientist who wants to understand, right? Like, uh, I'm worried about the companies where maybe science doesn't play as much of a driving force in the development of these technologies, uh, which I think academia has a fundamental role to play in the development of the science. And that's something we're pushing a lot at Stanford uh, through many various collaborations. Other people disagree. Like people say, why do we need to understand these things as long as they work? But I, I think that's completely unsustainable. And also... There is a long history of engineering being way ahead of the science, right? Like we had steam engines before we really understood the laws of thermodynamics, let alone the laws of physical mechanics. But never in the history of the interaction between science and engineering has a better understanding of the science not led to better engineering, right? But I think that's an incredible opportunity for science. So I'm quite excited about the state of affairs right now. Well, and there's something very deep about what you just said, because, you know, steam engines seem to be very trivial, but steam engines and the, the math behind steam engines is exactly the math that you used in creating uh, diffusion models and all this stuff. <laughs> Violating the second law of thermodynamics, right, by, tr by turning the reverse process into neural networks. Yeah, so who knows what general things that will be created, learn now, that will be used 200 years from now is, is the exciting thing. Yeah, definitely. Another super interesting opportunity is the geometrization of thought and language, right? The early work on words of X showed that word analogies were represented as directions in yeah, that in you could treat space. words as vectors and then do vector operations like addition and subtraction. Exactly. Like king minus man plus woman equals queen. Exactly, exactly, right. And so now that's going on steroids where we have these large language models and we have geometric representations of, of language and large language models. We, we had a paper in PNS recently on the geometry of concepts. Like, how is it that you could a, a neural network could do one-shot learning? You get one exemplar of a concept, and you that's it. That's all you need. You can get other exemplars of that concept, like a, a picture of a wombat. Maybe you've never seen a wombat before. You get one example, but then you can easily ask if new pictures given to you are wombats or not, right? So we asked, what is it about the neural geometry of concepts in a brain or a machine that allows that to be possible? And we were able to characterize like the, the geometry of concepts, what shapes they have to be, their radii, their dimension, and so forth. And we were able to compute the, the error probability of one-shot learning in terms of this geometry. Then we went into monkey brains, like you know, Jim DeCarlo at MIT has a bunch of experiments which shows complicated images of monkey brains. And we asked, well, according to our theory that relates the geometry of our concepts to our ability to do one-shot learning of concepts, do monkey brain representations satisfy the conditions of geometry required to do one-shot learning of concepts? And they did, actually. We, we haven't done the psychophysics experiments in monkeys to see if they can do one-shot learning, but we can show that we've a, if we have access to monkey brain representations, we can do that one-shot learning. Well, so let's back up, because that's really fascinating. So the geometry of this is some latent space in your model, right? That where yeah, that, or, that, or some hidden, hidden layer of some neural network. Yeah. yeah. But then what are you studying in monkey brains that sort of, what's the measurement? So in the infrared temporal cortex of monkeys, uh, they have high-level sensory representations that are very, like, category-selective. So, for example, in our infrared temporal cortex, we have those famous Jennifer Aniston neurons, right? Right. But, like... 
You show a picture of Jennifer Aniston, you're on, these neurons fire. You show a picture of Jennifer Aniston with Brad Pitt, they don't fire. <laughs> you show the word Jennifer Aniston, it fires, you know. Yeah, wow. um, and, and so you have these very high-level semantic representations. Uh, and so we looked at the monkey homologue of this area, and we showed that we looked at the activity patterns of hundreds of neurons in response to hundreds of images. And we looked at the geometry of these representations and, and, and assessed their ability to do one-shot learning. But, you know, one of the things we're working on, like for la large language models, you know, by the way, the entire world has completely changed in the last eight months, right, with the advent of GPT-4 and so forth, including what are the important theoretical questions to ask in theoretical machine learning, right? I think they've completely changed. And so we're actually retooling our lab to look at some of these questions. I think understanding how large language models um, process uh, mathematical models of sequences, right? Like, I think one, one of the things I tell my students uh, when I teach uh, is that, you know, data is in some sense the dark matter of theory in machine learning, right? In, in deep learning and AI. If we're going to understand any of these AI systems, we really have to understand what we're asking them to do. And what we're asking them to do is predict patterns in data, and we don't even understand those patterns. So we need to understand, we don't have mathematical control over these patterns. Like we don't have a mathematical description of language. We don't have a mathematical description of what a cat looks like. Ironically, the models we train on these things are our best mathematical descriptions of these concepts. So I think we have to go back to the drawing board and think about well-defined mathematical models of sequences like context-free grammars, uh, finite state machine-generated sequences and whatnot, and really develop a mathematical theory of how large language models learn these things, how much data they need, how do they generalize, what are the surprising things they can do in context. Well, what's interesting is that, especially where we are right now, training these models is very expensive. Like it could be tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in some extreme cases. And so that's probably at least that budget is outside the realm of academia. But given, let's say, llama weights or something like that. Exactly, exactly. You, you know, you could very easily sort of just try to understand it. And then that becomes a very natural thing, I think, for academia. Exactly, so yeah. So I'm very bullish on the open source community. I think what's going to happen is... Some, it's going to be something like the best open source models will always be as good as the best frontier models from some X months or maybe a year ago, I think. I, I feel like that's what's going to happen. And that will provide enough of a playground for academics to play because you can easily uh, download these models and do inference on them and study them and, and so forth. And you also, in academia, we can train toy models easily on, on mathematically well-defined tasks. We can do that. And so I think there's a lot of room for academia to play in this space, especially when we team up with open source communities. Naturally, interdisciplinary work is not new. I remember going having to go through this with biophysics you know, in yeah. the, the 90s, where you know, in the end, when I was at Stanford, I was in chemistry, structural biology, computer science, and biophysics. Yeah. There still is a value to having a home department. Like you have a physics degree. We know what you know. You have a neuroscience degree, we know what you know, uh, and take advantage of their sort of unique skills, uh, but then also overlap into other areas. But, you, but also being a lifelong learner is also incredibly important. Like I graduated from my PhD in string theory and I went into neuroscience and I had to do some stats and I didn't know what a p-value was until I was a postdoc. So. Do, do you have any tips there? I think meta-learning, the ability to learn how to learn is one of my favorite topics. Yeah. One of the tricks is learning very different things and you, you sort of... Uh, carry over one to the other. Any tips on the meta-learning area? I'm always searching for connections in my brain between any new piece of information I take in and, and what I know. So for example, when I was learning physics, actually, like I would, I would always take the physics class and the math class together and then try to form connections between them. So for example, I would take general relativity 
and the math was obscure with all this index notation. Yeah, differential geometry. And then I take differential geometry and Riemannian geometry. And there the math is beautiful. The conceptual structure is great. But they don't do calculations. Like they don't actually measure the curvature of any, anything really. Yeah. And, and so that, but then like once I took each class together and then I collated the relationships between them, it just, uh, it just helped my understanding. Same with physics and machine, physics and statistics, right? Uh, you know, like 20 years from now, uh, what do you think the world looks like? Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very worried about making predictions about the future, especially given like, None of us saw GPT four coming, right? Like, no, well, I don't but know with that said, like, did you? Because you saw Bert, you you saw probably GPT, you saw Transformers, yeah. you saw uh, attention mechanisms. I think what caught us by surprise is just playing with it with our own hands, right? Yeah, I, I think so. But I, I think there was a bit of a quantum leap in in capabilities that was a bit surprising. Like in the future. You know, I don't think coding will be that important. I'm still teaching my eight-year-old son to code because I think it's a fantastic way to hone your mind and think logically and, and, and so forth and think algorithmically. And important. it happens to be fun, too. Yeah. But, but yeah. And it's fun. Yeah, it, it's fun. Like, just because uh, AI can beat humans at chess, humans haven't stopped playing chess. You know, a lot of things that we do now will become automatic. And so the question is, where will the value added of humans be in the future Will human creativity be valued as much in, in a world of AI creativity? If you look at other analogies, like there's still a market for handcrafted furniture, right? Yeah. It's almost like the nostalgia. You know, there's some beautiful Japanese furniture where they, they don't use any nails or they, they, they yeah. wedge stuff together, oh, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly beautiful. And, and so I don't see AI-generated text moving me in the same way that certain beautiful works of literature move me. You know, when William Butler Yeats read the Kitanjali, right, mm. by Tagore, my, my fellow Bengali who, who won a Nobel Prize for literature, I've never seen that from AI-generated literature. And I, I don't know, you know, there's something about reading literature that's generated by a human that has the same empathy, emotions, human experiences that makes it much more authentic than human AI, than AI generated literature, even if it were better. Circles of trust, that's something that's happening right now, right? Like the very existence that deep fakes, the very fact that deep fakes exist automatically destabilize any conversation on the internet about what the truth is, because anybody can take any true piece of evidence and say it's a deep fake, yeah. right? So who will online trust may be extremely difficult to maintain in the future. And everything's going to shrink to our own personal circles of trust, which might be a good thing. Like, I think it'll uh, be trust networks, right? I mean, it'll be that... trust networks. Exactly. So for example, like uh, on Twitter, I have curated my list of people I follow. I, I follow a lot of machine learning, neuroscience, physics people. I, I know them. I trust them. Like I've met a lot of them in real life. Well, it'll be a good reflection on us too, right? We may learn more about ourselves. There are interesting philosophical puzzles about what is the nature of understanding and how do we recognize it when we see it. I mean, people are debating whether or not these large models really understand stuff. And then you get into debate, philosophical debates about what is the nature of understanding. So I think for the first time, at least in my life, philosophy becomes quite relevant. <laughs> yeah, well, and it even becomes debatably quantifiable if, to the extent you think compression is understanding. We can, yeah. we can quantify that. There might be a field called computational philosophy oh, <laughs> wow. know, to, that might, might develop. One other take on this, is anything you're scared of in the future? Maybe I'm like old school now. I do worry about uh, 
the degradation of the ability to think because we rely too much on these LLMs. I, I put a tweet out there where I, I have decided I will not use ChatGPT to help me to write because the very act of going from a blank piece of paper to a coherent argument is tantamount to, to thinking itself. So if we seed our writing, at least the generation of a first draft to AI, we seed our ability to think also. And I still have not used ChatGPT to help me write anything. My math skills are not nearly as good as my thesis advisor, Alexander Grossberg. Grossberg was, he was like number one in Russia in high school in math. He's like up here. On the other hand, I think I'm better at math than a lot of my grad students. But then again, like you compare me to Grossberg and computers, I'm way better than he is on yeah. that and probably more de deep in biology and all these other things than, than analogously with my grad students. And so we just have different skills, right? And, yeah, it's, and it's so different skills. Yeah. like my spelling is horrible compared to my parents, but maybe it doesn't really matter. And so maybe it'll be something like that. Definitely. Yeah. It's actually interesting that you say that. My, my advisor, Petr Hojava, who was famous for discovering one of the five string theories, uh, heterotic string theory anyways, but... But his advice to me was, Sri, I never use Mathematica to do your calculations. Yes. Otherwise, you won't see the patterns. So I've never used Mathematica. Like, I've always done all my calculations by hand. I thought it was good for me, but, you know, I, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, maybe I would have been even more successful if I used Mathematica. I think learning will be different, and I think there'll be pros and cons. But I think each of us are products of the environment that we need it to be. Exactly. exactly, yeah. What might happen is that the existence of these tools just change the way that humans generate value for other humans in this context. And we need to figure out as educators how to give students the skills to provide that value. We need to recognize what that value is in the first place. I saw a cartoon that was like, you know, GPT is great because what is, it allows me to communicate with my wife much better. I write something really short <laughs> and it expands it to something really long. So it looks like I put a lot of thought into it. And then she gets it, and then she like does a summarization thing on it. And, it <laughs> and so we've invented inverse compression, you know? Like, yes, yes. Who knows? One thing I do want to say is this, this AI doom stuff and existential risk is complete BS. Yes. Like, uh, it, it detracts from more proximal things that we have to worry about, more reasonable risks that we have to think about. It takes the oxygen out of room about rational debate. Uh, so I just want to state that out there, like... Uh, I'm appalled at some of the things that people are worrying about uh, for, for the AI doomerism and so forth. Yeah, I have the exact same reaction. It's the people that don't know better, don't know better, but they shouldn't be speaking. And in the end, it's only as what we put in it, right? I mean, there are, they are our machines in the end. It is, but, but one, one thing I think we do have to worry about that is human, human and AI in the loop, right? Like the interaction between human and AI even if the AI is providing information for decision-making capacity for humans, if humans are acting on that information and providing new scenarios for the AI to suggest new, that the human AI loop is unpredictable, right? And I think we have to be very careful about that. It's just like the classic trope, self-driving cars are easy if you take out the humans on the road. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's only problem is when you have humans on the road that self-driving cars become hard. Yeah. And so I think there's an aspect of that in decision-making. And so right now, these LLMs aren't taking actions in the world, these foundation models. But they will. And you know, what happens there? Right. Like, I think that's something we have to worry about. We have to think about that a bit more carefully. Well, I think that makes sense. And I think that's why it's useful to think about the future. And that seems very rational. And, and at least in certain areas that um, I deal with, let's say on the healthcare side, there's already a regulatory framework to deal with that. Yeah. I think anything that we are, are worried about is currently illegal. If you're employing AI, you have to be thoughtful about how it's employed. 
I've heard this word, like when we stick in our toaster into the plug, we're never worried about getting electrocuted, right? We're never worried about getting electrocuted by us. But that's because there's this, you know, national standards and, and years of regulation of the electrical industry. And one thing I do worry about is lack of government capacity yeah. to understand these systems, to regulate them in intelligent ways without stifling innovation. But each toaster is not approved by the FDA. You know, it's it's a set of yeah. guidelines and like it's nice to have a three plong plug and, and grounded. Yeah, like anti standards, right? Yeah, so I like, think we can do it with standards that are different than heavy, heavy regulation. Yeah, I, I hope so. The, the notion of auditing AI systems by external auditors is clearly part of the solution and, and so forth. But then, you know, you could get AI systems to fake audits, right? I do think adversarial examples are like the canary in the coal mine of like, these AI systems don't think anything like we do. Like they, they fundamentally don't understand things the way we do. Shortcuts in reasoning that these things take are all... So, so I think red teaming these systems and really understanding what kinds of shortcuts, what kind of slightly suboptimal repetition is doing, it's very important. Um, there's a lot of science to be done there. I think that's a great place to wrap it up, uh, especially since it comes back to where we were in the beginning. In the end, this comes to our ability to understand these systems. And with our ability to understand these systems, I think will come that added confidence that I think is probably what's missing. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you so much for being on BioWeeds World. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ajay. It's great being here. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. 